Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, which 90s rapper deserves an Oscar and which couldn't act his way out of a beatbox? We'll talk about this and other important questions with Ashley Clark, film programmer at BAM, where the Black 90s film series is currently underway. And, and look at what other films were being made at this time. Look at what other filmmakers were acting um, in different genres. And to kind of make the point that black film in and of itself is not a genre. And then, humankind got you down, feeling a bit misanthropic. The plays of Moliere might be a tonic for the times, and you can catch them free in Prospect Park. I've become sort of uh, in love with this idea that if Moliere were alive today, he'd live in Brooklyn. Come at me. The 1990s is the greatest decade American cinema has ever seen. In 1994 alone, you had Pulp Fiction, Natural Born Killers, The Shawshank Redemption, Clerks, Speed and True Lies. Even the bad movies are good. The 90s gave us striptease and showgirls. And those are only the white movies. Our neighbors over at BAM are in the midst of an epic film series called Black 90s, a turning point in American cinema. Of course, it arrives with a sad coincidence, the untimely death of John Singleton, director of Boys in the Hood. This classic is one of dozens of films in the 18-day series, and today we're joined by its curator, Ashley Clark. Welcome to Woman 2 BK. Hi, thanks for having me. So maybe let's start by talking a little bit about John Singleton, who was the first African-American and still the youngest person to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Director. Yeah, he was 24 so He at the was time. just 24 when he made Boys in the Hood, um, which is a, a kind of classic, uh, poetic, very moving tale of um, inner city L.A. life starring Ice Cube and Cuba Gooding Jr., um, and it's a wonderful piece of filmmaking. I think it's one of those films that is so referenced in the culture that it's maybe ossified into, it, it was almost parodied in a way, um, and it became something that wasn't respected as much as it should have been, but it's a beautiful piece of work. And um, it was actually parodied too with- um, Don't be a menace to South Central with while well, drinking, well, drinking juice, juice in, in the hood, head. exactly. And, and things like that, yeah. you know. So I think over time, people maybe forgot quite how good it was. But it was remarkable that he was just 23 years old when he made it. Uh, he went on to forge a, an extraordinary career, making films like Poetic Justice with uh, Janet Jackson and Tupac, which were screening in the series, um, Higher Learning, films like Rosewood, which are less well-known. Um, and he died at just 51. And we were hoping to, to welcome him uh, to BAM uh, on Sunday to for the Q&A for Boys in the Hood. So you can imagine it's all hit us extremely hard. Uh, and our thoughts just go out to his his family and his friends. And one thing that really struck us all um, was how much of a mentor he was to a whole other generation of filmmakers um, that he helped to kind of to come through. So he's, 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 he's gonna be greatly missed. He was a really great presence. Absolutely. And um, as you mentioned, he did really sort of create a genre. Um, and many other films that explore sort of similar coming of age stories are in this series. Yeah, I mean, that, that became one of the key, I suppose, micro genres of the early 90s in, in black cinema. So you have films like uh, New Jack City and Straight Out of Brooklyn, Menace to Society. And these are all films that we're screening. They really captured a moment. Um, there was a, a New York Times magazine article in 1991 uh, entitled They've Gotta Have Us, um, which was a very conspicuously male lineup of filmmakers um, who were all working in that same kind of genre. And, and that, that's kind of one of the most iconic, um, I think, cinematic representations of that era to the point where Spike Lee in 1996 is kind of critiquing that with his own film Clockers, which we're showing. And obviously Spike Lee is, is another key figure of this era and a, I would say Brooklyn's greatest living filmmaker. 
And this is such a robust and thoughtful lineup. You can see that, as you mentioned, you have films in the series that are commenting on other films in the series that maybe came a little bit earlier. Why did you decide to put together this series um, on 90s black cinema? And why is it a turning point for American filmmaking? Well, I think ultimately when, when I'm looking at curating a series, I have to think of certain frameworks. So the first film I thought of in this whole series was, was Crooklyn by Spike Lee because it's 25th anniversary coming up. And I thought, well, we could do one, a one-off screening of this one film, but wouldn't it be nice to look at this whole breadth of time um, and, and look at what other films were being made at this time, look at what other filmmakers were active um, in different genres, and to kind of make the point that black film in and of itself is not a genre. And I think that's something that's a cliche. We hear about box office reports of black films not, not selling or whatever. It was really important for me to see that within that there were filmmakers operating in queer spaces, in comedy, in thriller, and there were filmmakers who'd got their starts in the 70s in the, the L.A. Rebellion independent filmmaking movement, filmmakers like Charles Burnett and Julie Dash um, and Haile Garima, whose films we've screened already, um, and they were coming back in the 90s and making work and influencing new generations. And it, it's interesting for me as a curator to bring these things under one banner and give audiences um, who weren't there younger audiences an opportunity to to discover things and also to look at um, audiences who were there at the time and give them a chance to revisit and, and draw their own connections. Um, I think the, the whole theatrical experience is really important. That's our bread and butter as a repertory cinema. You know, that we have competition from, from Netflix and Criterion and they do great work, but it's really important for us to entice people into the cinema, into that communal space um, to experience these films. And we can commune together and discuss them afterwards. That's really important to me. And you are curating these conversations in addition to the films that are being shown on the big screen. So you had Charles Burnett in conversation, you yep. mentioned during opening weekend. What was that like for you? I was wonderful. I mean, Charles uh, and I have had a few conversations for, for certain podcasts and Q&As, but he came in the other evening for uh, the opening night film, which was To Sleep With Anger. And for people who don't know that film, maybe a couple uh, sentences. Yeah, it's, so it's his third feature film from 1990. It stars and was executive produced by Danny Glover, who was then fresh off of Lethal Weapon 2. So he had some real clout mm -hmm. to help get this small family drama made. Um, it's about a family in South Central LA a family with a history uh, from the South. They're fr from Mississippi, so they're part of the Great Migration. And one day they're visited by this mysterious stranger, played by Danny Glover, um, who may or may not be the devil. Um, and it's, it's a kind that of... That old thing. That old thing. Yeah. And, and it's a film about family and about folklore and about Southern traditions um, and history. And it's funny and it's uh, a film about the blues and about music. And it's just a wonderful piece of work that has had a kind of a resurgence critically and commercially in, in recent times. It's just been released by the Criterion Collection. But for many, many years, it was difficult to see. So again, as in my work as a repertory programmer, I think it's important uh, for me to be bringing things to, to audiences that they, that they may not have seen before. Even if these things have come back into the cultural conversation to an extent, we can never give up. At this point in the conversation, I would like to introduce a rating system that we will okay. be using for the rest of this interview, which is um, you can give films one to five Angela Bassett's. <laughs> um, how many Angela Bassett's are you gonna give to Sleep With Anger? How many, was it one to five? One to five. I would give five Angela Bassett. Five out of five Angela Bassett. Absolutely. Okay, that is a... Uh, Can I give is, six? Can I give it six? 
Let's give it six. six Why not? Five. It's a made-up system. Indeed. Six Angela Bassett's to sleep with anger. Um, what about Spike? You mentioned that this is the 25th uh, anniversary of Crookland. Is that That's right? That's correct. Is yeah. he coming out? Hopefully. Um, okay. He's currently shooting his next project uh, after Black Klansman in Thailand. It's, I think it's a, a war drama. So we're hoping that the schedule will allow for him to be with us. Come on back, Spike. Yeah. We always enjoy having Spike in the house uh, to celebrate his films. With us, we've done 25th anniversary screenings of, of Malcolm X, uh, 30th anniversary screening of School Days, 20th of He Got Game. So he's always welcome over to us for a celebration, and we do hope he'll be there for Crooklyn. The great thing about Spike is there's always an anniversary to celebrate of a great movie. He's a prolific filmmaker, and you know I think it's important to be clear that he's a great artist as well. He's not just prolific, he's a, a fantastic generative artist, and I think he, he is sometimes underrated in that regard. He's often spoken of as a polemicist or a political filmmaker, which is true. He's also a great artist, and, and we love that about him. So the films in the series are firmly planted in the 90s, from mm. 1990 up to 1999, is that right? Yep. Yeah, okay. So the entire span the entire decade. I'm curious about how you see the evolution of black cinema while acknowledging that, as you said, black cinema is not a genre. How are some of these films impacting the African-American directors who are working today? Well, I think some of the key directors today, uh, key African-American directors like Dee Rees, Barry Jenkins, Jordan Peele, um, are, are looking back to this era in terms of um, some aesthetics and, and themes and narratives, and you can see some, some fairly clear connections. Um, what's interesting is that after the 90s, things quietened down a little bit. And I think what we see now are maybe lessons being learned from the 90s and how certain careers weren't followed up on. What's really exciting is that filmmakers like Ava DuVernay and Dee Rees and Barry Jenkins, they're starting to make films in quick succession. They're starting to make two, three, four movies back to back. Um, and I think that is due to a wider awakening in, in, in financial terms, in terms of studios, that black people do go to movies. But sometimes people forget this. Um, and, and things are kind of circular, but I think that we're in a stage now where, where we can be positive about the future. I wonder if in the 90s, um, if somebody who had made a smaller film, like uh, A Girl on the IRT, is that Just Another Girl, just on, another the girl IRT, on the IRT, yeah. uh, if that director would have been you know, plucked to make the next big superhero studio movie. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, that seems to be one tactic these days. Sure. That, that someone <laughs> gets one good one. film under their belt and yeah. suddenly they're the next in line for the, the Marvel throne. Which obviously has problems inherent in it as well. Absolutely, yeah. as if that is the pinnacle, you right. know, rather than being able to tell artistic stories and to be funded to, to tell personal um, artistic experimental stories. That's, a, that's the dream world. But we do see that with someone like Barry Jenkins, who's making beautiful, poetic, um, personal, unconventional films. So I hope that the lessons that were not learned before are learned this time around. Um, but the, the 90s give us a good opportunity to go back and see some careers that maybe should have been you know, that really should have been developed, but weren't. So there's a poignancy to this series as well, certainly. Um, we'd like to do just a little bit of a quiz, and there's no right answers to these questions except for the ones where there is. Um, <laughs> so why don't we start with this question? In your opinion, which knee along is the best knee along? Love Jones knee along, Friday knee along, or Boys in the Hood knee along? Love Jones okay. knee along. Which 90s rapper turned actor is the best rapper and which is the best actor? Um, you can choose from the following list. Tupac, Ice Cube, Nas, DMX, Kid, Play, and Will Smith, who's not represented in this series but is ubiquitous. I'm going to say DMX because I want people to come out and see Belly. Okay. Best, best rapper Williams. or best actor or both? Both everything. Okay. 
Uh, tell us a little bit about Belly and how many Angela Bassets are you giving it? I'm going to give it seven out of five Angela Bassets. <laughs> Excellent. You love Belly. Yeah, absolutely. Why should people come see it? Um, it's a one-off. It's the only film directed by Hype Williams, who was arguably the most important and influential music video director of the era. He, he directed uh, music videos, films in their own right for Buster Rhymes, Missy Elliott, and so on. And this film is unlike anything else. It's ostensibly a crime drama, but the plot is um, incomprehensible at best. It's a purely visual experience. And lest I sound too lofty or pretentious, it's really great to immerse yourself in that kind of thing on the big screen because it's pure cinema. It's trusting the images and sound to do the work. And it's really immersive. Okay, yeah. Belly, seven out of five Angela Bassett's for an incomprehensible yet unmissable film. That's how I and we roll. Wonderful. <laughs> okay. Um, how old was Matty Rich when he released Straight Out of Brooklyn? Was he A, 19, B, 23, C, 28? A, 19. That is correct. Tell me a little bit about Straight Out of Brooklyn. Uh, it's kind of part of that same stable of, of films thematically, the, the young kind of inner city um, urban blight, but young characters trying to make their way in a world of drugs and crime. Um, but it's made with real energy and real heart. And Maddie Rich went on to make another film called The Inkwell um, before moving in, I think, potentially into advertising. I'm not sure that he made a full kind of transition into a career as a filmmaker. I wish he had. Um, but yeah, Straight Out of Brooklyn's a really brilliant debut. Which of the films in this program has the best soundtrack? Hmm. That's a tough one. A... We didn't even give you multiple choice. Waiting to Exhale has a great soundtrack. It does. I wanted to mention Whitney. Yeah. Here. And I think one quick thing about this series in general, you're seeing a lot of um, rappers and, and, and uh, uh, music artists transitioning into being screen icons. So Tupac, Ice Cube, Janet Jackson. That's one theme that runs through this series. Um, but yeah, let's say Wedding to Exhale. Another, another theme is uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. Which of the following films, and not all of these are in your lineup, but which of them doesn't have Samuel L. Jackson? A, The Return of Superfly. B, Jungle Fever. C, Menace to Society. D, Friday. E, Eve's Bayou. Is it A? Trick question. They all have Samuel L. Jackson. What was the Jackson. first question? The, the first? Return of Superfly. I can't say I knew that was a film. So I've been, <laughs> I've been stumped. Stumped the curator. Excellent. I resign. I hereby <laughs> tender my resignation. Uh, okay, if you absolutely had to choose one of the following films to include as an add-on to this series, which would it be? A, Bad Boys. B, Foxy Brown. C, Menace to Society. D, Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. Uh, let's say D, okay. Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. Great. Because there's not enough singing and also dancing. Also Lauren Hill. I mean... Lauren Hill, yeah. I'm curious about, we were just talking with a previous guest about, you know, 90s black cinema, and she was like, it was the best decade. And then she was like, well, maybe it was the 70s. And then she paused and said, well, you know, the 70s film was built on black exploitation. Talk to me a little bit about um, the emergence of black exploitation film in the 70s and the progression through uh, the 90s. Well, I think there are some parallels between the black exploitation films of the, the 70s, the Shafts and the Superflies and the Foxy Browns with films like Menace to Society and Straight Out of Brooklyn, films that are very macho, very about masculinity, feature violence and sex and so on. Um, but I think there's a, another parallel, which is in the 70s at the same time as black exploitation is happening, which is beyond a couple of black directors like um, Gordon Parks and, and Melvin Van Peebles is often kind of directed and funded by white people. Um, but there's at the same time as, as black exploitation, you have 
just a few miles west, uh, the UCLA, the LA Rebellion, filmmakers like Charles Burnett and Julie Dash and Haile Garima and Billy Woodbury, who were making these incredible interior poetic films about black life. Uh, and they're still making work in the 90s. So there's like a dual parallel, which I think is really interesting. Um, but black exploitation, um, it, it's a pejorative term in some respects, but it's also fun. People enjoy going to see these things because they turn certain stereotypes of black people on their heads, while perhaps at the same time re re reifying or reinscribing other stereotypes. They're worthy of real critical um, analysis, I think, but the bottom line is a lot of them are quite fun. So many cinemaphiles in their 20s and younger, um, you know, they might be turning out for Jordan Peele's latest film, they might be lining up on opening day of Black Panther, mm -hmm. but maybe they haven't seen a lot of these films that you curated. What do you hope that younger audiences who aren't familiar with these movies take away? That, that there's always been a lineage of, of black film and that black filmmakers often in the margins have been working to, to flip and reverse stereotypes, deepen and, and, and you know, bring complexity to stories of, of black people and black lives. Um, and that this is not just a new thing. I think often in the culture, there's a rush to be the first of this, the first of that. When in fact, there is a history there. And it's part of my job as a curator to explore and present that history, but not to do it in a heavy handed or um, pedantic way. I think this is, it's, you know, I can talk about it in terms of theory and, and criticism, but it's really about fun. And I want young, younger people who've not seen these films uh, to feel like they've had a real experience and that it sparks them to go and learn more. Um, so it's down to us to make the theatrical experience really worthwhile and hopefully fun. And I hope that's what we're doing with this series. I won't ask you which of these films is your favorite because that seems unfair, but which one do you think will be the most fun to watch in a theater? Um, I think Belly, just because it's so weird. <laughs> wow, you love Belly. I think it's great. I mean, yeah. I think it's a, an underrated um, film. It's sold loads of tickets already, so be quick. Okay, um, you've sold me on yeah, it. Yeah, it's just, it's pure cinema. Again, if that sounds pretentious, I apologize. But when you see it, when you see the visuals, the sound, and you realize that he's, he's doing stuff visually that you haven't seen before. So that's really up there for me. Okay. And Crooklyn also, the closing night film, which is a very, it's a perfect Brooklyn movie. It's, it's nostalgic, it's warm, it's, it has beautiful performances. Um, and I think it's the, the perfect ending to this series. Well, we hope that Spike will be there for that. Um, again, so tragic that John Singleton won't be there this mm -hmm. coming weekend. Um, but speaking of tickets, tell people how they can get tickets. I know there's like a special package deal if they want to see more than two films. Yeah, um, you can buy uh, bam.org forward slash film. Um, or just the BAM website, you can come in and buy tickets at the box office. Just like normal. Just like normal. Um, there is a multi-film discount. If you buy more than two or three, you get some, you get some money off. Um, so yeah, we're trying to make it worth your while. And yeah, uh, just, just come through. I, I would recommend absolutely everything. Great. Thank you so much for coming out and talking Thank to us. Thank you. Cheers. Move over, Shakespeare. There's a new dead guy in town. That's right, Moliere is breaking Bill from Avon's monopoly on summer theater in the park. Don't know much about this 17th century French playwright who once said, the most effective way of attacking vice is to expose it to ridicule? 
you're not alone. Here to tell us more about Moliere and why he's the wig-wearing, tubercular satirist these trying times demand is Lucy Tiburgian, director of this year's performance of The Misanthrope, and actress Mandy Mazden. Welcome to the show, you guys. Thank, Thank you. you very much. So I'm starting with the baseline assumption that a lot of people don't know who Moliere is. So Lucy, maybe you can give us a little bit of background. Sure. So uh, Moliere is a 17th century playwright. Um, he is the most well-known playwright uh, of the French language. He is still performed all the time. I think he's the playwright that's the most performed at the Comédie Française still today. He uh, wrote maybe, I would say, I hope I'm not wrong, about 30 plays. He uh, started um, being very inspired by Commedia dell'arte, an Italian uh, farce. And then he started to write much more sort of psychologically um, um, inspired or in-depth comedies. And um, he was both loved and uh, extremely criticized by sort of the ruling class um, because he his sort of mission in life was to expose the um, hypocrisy or the power structure of uh, French society. And in many ways, I think uh, every, every question his plays ask um, resonate still quite a lot these days. He was writing during the reign of Louis XIV, and many of his plays are sort of set either in court or around court and um, take on the social mores of the time. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And Mandy, had you read or performed any Moliere before coming on board for this production? I did. I had read a couple in high school, and I'd seen a few um, in grad school and kind of after grad school. It's always very interesting, and it's always very, he's very funny. Um, and I, I think a lot of people don't realize how, how funny it is. Um, but I know School for Wives is, I think, is hilarious. It's so timely still that it's just kind of amazing. And I think that's why he keeps getting performed over and over again. Mm -hmm. So this is the inaugural season of Moliere in the Park. And by the park, we mean our own Prospect Park. Um, and it's going to be a staged reading of The Misanthrope. So Mandy, maybe you can tell us a little bit about this play and the role that you play in it. Well, I play Eliant, mm -hmm. um, and the, I think the misanthrope, I think is the most popular one that's done of his plays, and it kind of circles around Alceste and his disdain for the court and everything that has to do with the court. He's very against hypocrisy, and he's very against like kind of the mores of how things are done. So it's kind of him flailing out against the against the system at hand, and he gets he gets in a bit of trouble for it later on in the play. Um, but it's mostly about that. I think what's interesting about the play is that he not only criticizes hypocrisy in at the court, but sort of in general in mankind. Um, and uh, the irony is that he is madly in love with Silliman, who is uh, sort of the queen of sociability. The um, biggest hypocrite of all, some mm -hmm. might say. In many ways. What I love is, to me, the play, in a way, is very feminist in the sense that um, I think what's at the, at the core of it is that she... Uh, in order to remain independent uh, as a woman in society is also having to play by certain rules. Uh, she does not have the choice of moral absolutism the way that he does as a man in this society. So I like to think of the play as being also very much about her and about the choices that people who don't have that kind of privilege have to make. And who is Eliant, your character in it's this? It's her cousin, and uh, she's okay. kind of um, more of a middle ground. She doesn't. She's kind of uh, in the center. She has a, more of a moral 
and she doesn't exist in a world of extremism. Exactly. Right? So she kind of exists in the center. Exactly. Exactly. How are we supposed to feel about this main character? I mean, the play is called The Misanthrope. Yes. Um, is, there, is there judgment? Is there authorial judgment mm -hmm. about his moral mm -hmm. absolutism. Mm -hmm. Well, I think over time in, <clears throat> in all the productions that have happened, he is either sort of ridiculed for his extremism or he made made a made a hero for, for his quest for honesty. Mm -hmm. um, I think that really a good production would would allow both things to be true. And and that's where I think Moliere is so uh, extraordinary is that he criticizes and loves at the same time. And himself was always pulled between a desire to share his love of mankind and also ask all of us to to reach a level of honesty and, and generosity that he expected of himself. And Lucy, you've mentioned that you feel like Moliere is extremely resonant today mm -hmm. and that he's actually quite Brooklyn mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. Will you talk a little <laughs> bit about that? Yeah. I mean, people often ask me why Moliere, why now? Um, you know, I... I, I just crossed that question off the list. Then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that he, well, he's both funny. Uh, he's intelligent, his work. Um, he's subversive. He's uh, embracing of all types of people. And in many ways, that feels like Brooklyn to me. And that's why I've, I've become sort of in love with this idea that Moliere is, you know, if Moliere were alive today, he'd live in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Brooklynites so are a little bit, we're the center of the universe. Of course he would live here. <laughs> um, I think he, he he's a popular playwright, but I think popular in the sense that he's close to the people mm -hmm. and uh, and he is in love with the people. And um, and I think that we live in an incredibly rich, diverse community. Um, and I think that he uh, and I'm and I'm really interested in bringing his work to that community and in that community being able to see itself reflected in his work. Did you grow yeah. up in France? I did. I'm curious to hear more about sort of how Moliere is viewed in France, because, you know, here in the U.S., Shakespeare, up in, you know, in the 90s, we had a teen film based on Taming of the Shrew starring mm -hmm. Julia Stiles. You know mm -hmm, what I mean? Mm -hmm. Is Moliere sort of viewed that way in France? That's a good question. So, yes, uh, he's done all the time. As I said, he's studied in school. Um, you know, everybody who goes through the French public school system uh, will have studied at least one or two or three of his plays. In France, they're very interested in this sort of, you know, the, 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 the fun aspects of Moliere, but also the deeper, more psychological, more subversive, darker aspect. I mean, I think Moliere himself was both an incredibly dark human being and somebody full of joy. And, uh, and I think that the darker aspects of his work are very much explored in a lot of the productions in France while remaining comedies or even farces. Here, they tend to, uh, the ones I've seen, tend to live in the world of comedy and farce uh, more without exploring the, the, the deeper, darker uh, aspects mm -hmm. of it. When they directed in France, do they play with 
um, do, do directors play with interpretations of like place and time the way that they do with Shakespeare here? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Some are, some are, some are placed at the time, and and uh, a lot of them are very contemporary. An Afrofuturist yeah. Tartuffe. Yeah, I'm sure. Totally <laughs> Let's make it happen. That would kind of be amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. You mentioned that a lot of his work is grounded in commedia, and often I feel like when there is heightened language that people are like, oh, this isn't going to be approachable. I'm not going to understand. It. Yeah. Um, this idea of having sort of these broad characters or mm -hmm. stock characters who people mm -hmm. might be able to identify with yeah. uh, can be comforting. Are there yeah. characters in the misanthrope that are sort of these broad stock yeah. characters that you, you might know, find? You know, not really. And I would say that earlier in his career, Moliere worked with those characters, mm -hmm. but then really moved away from that and wrote characters and stories uh, that had more complexity and, and, and more psychology in them. That's not to say that it's hard to identify yourself. I think on the contrary, the humanity of every one of his characters uh, allows uh, us to see ourselves reflected in them. I really believe that. Mm -hmm. And so this is a staged reading, once again, of The Misanthrope. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be May 18th through 20th? Correct. In Prospect Park? Correct. Um, so it's we're doing three three nights. Our first night on the 18th is a sort of uh, inaugural celebratory event that is also a fundraiser for our 2020 production. And on the 19th and 20th, we'll be doing these two uh, readings uh, of the full play. We have an incredible cast, Samira Wiley being one of them, Mandy Mazden being another one of them, Jenny Mudge, Chris Coffey, Hostel Pringle, Tamara Sivuns, and I think that's it for now. We say it's a reading. Is it a staged reading? Can we expect full Louis Couture's costumes? I don't think you can expect that, but um, it is, it, it's, I think would say it's a stylized reading. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, we'll, you know, I think we'll be up, we'll be interacting, but we will have our, our scripts and we'll, have, we'll be out and about music stands. So yeah. it will not be a mounted production. Okay. Yeah. And if people want to find out more information, do you want uh, to point them to? MolièreInThePark.org. Everything's up there uh, on our website. I think that's the best way to find out about uh, all of our upcoming events. You know, people can reserve their tickets for the readings through Eventbrite, but they can also bring a, a blanket and grab a patch of grass and watch from the sides. And we should mention that it's free. Yes, it it's is zero dollars. Zero dollars. And you can bring a picnic basket yep. and wine as long as it's in a designated container. Well, I wish you guys the best of luck on this performance and for next season. Thank you so um, much. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for thank having you. us. And that is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to give us five out of five Angela Bassett's. Order review 112BK on iTunes. Also, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 